Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of the Anfield Index Preview Pod. After Liverpool secured a narrow win over a well-drid Brighton side last weekend, we'll be discussing the start of the season and looking ahead to Saturday's game against Leicester City. So joining me for the pod this week, I'm delighted to welcome back AI contributor Umar Jawaid and Leicester City correspondent for the Leicester Mercury, James Sharp. Welcome guys. Hi guys, pleased to be on. Yeah, it's great to be back. Thank you. No worries. Great to speak with both of you uh, and, and James Really appreciate you coming on to give us sort of a good, a good insight into Leicester. So, um, yeah, so starting with Leicester then, and uh, James, what what I wanted to ask you on first then was just what your thoughts were on how last season finished for you guys, and um, and whether you whether you'd done well to finish ninth, or given how the season ended with one in was it, was it one win in seven towards the end of the season, um, whether there there was some disappointment regarding that. So, what were your sort of general thoughts on how Leicester ended the season last year? Oh yeah, it was really disappointing. Um, the fans were were dreaming of Europe. There was a point about two thirds of the way through the season where Puel had just come in and Leicester, I think they won four on the bounce, and it was just before the whole Riyad Mahrez going AWOL saga. And it looked, looked like Leicester had a real great chance of finishing seventh and being that best of the rest, and potentially even having a sniff at sixth because Arsenal were really stumbling at that point. But then Leicester's form just completely fell off a cliff and uh, the players couldn't quite grasp what Puel wanted them to do and it all got a little bit sideways and boring. And by the end of it, the fans had had, had turned and it all got quite toxic. There was the penultimate game at home against against West Ham. That finished in defeat and there were loads of boos, loads of people left before the end. And it was meant to be the the last for appreciation by the players at the end. And I mean, they were mainly waving empty chairs, and there was a real sense of disappointment yeah. and a real frustration with Claude Puel at that point. So, yeah, the the ending of the season was was really disappointing, and it, it was going to be a bit of a surprise if Puel survived it, which of course he has. But at that point, there was real questions over whether he would survive the summer. That's interesting. Then. So, I mean, in terms of that slump towards the end of the season, and I, you mentioned there that lots of questions were being levelled at Claude Puel. Um, but uh, how greatly do you think that the the Mares affair there, and, and the fact that he was clearly unsettled, um, increasingly 
and unsettled. Um, how much of a factor do you think that was with the team not you know, having that poor end to the season rather oh, than, mass- than it be massive. Well, tactics. Yeah, massive. Um, because Leicester just won pretty much four on the bounce. They were, going, they were heading to Everton on on deadline day and the day before, which was when uh, Man City's interest started to started to break. Riyad didn't turn up. Riyad, it was the last day of training before they before they went, and they were meant to be working on on set piece drills. And Riyad just didn't turn up. And he's he's obviously he's he's the, he is so key to Leicester's set pieces or working to their set pieces. And he just just went AWOL. And I mean the, the the players and the manager all came out and were were quite supportive of of Mares. But from what we understood at the time. A lot of those senior players in that dressing room were very unhappy with how he had acted. And then from that position, Leicester's form just, just fell off a cliff. Now, I'm not putting all at, at Morris's door. There was, there were issues with how the players, like I say, had dealt with his, ta- with Wells' tactics, although I'm a, a big, big fan of, of Wells. But that Morris situation did have quite a prolific impact on Leicester's form because it was so good beforehand and it was so poor mm. afterwards. No, certainly then. So, I mean, we seem to get sort of snippets of it there, but what were your thoughts on uh, Claude Puel's performance as a manager in his first season at the club? Uh, obviously, things didn't end well, and as you mentioned, there were lots of questions about whether he actually would make it through the summer. He has done, of course. Um, Puel's a manager who's always interested me, especially in the way in which things end up at Southampton. Uh, I guess it's easy to say with hindsight now, looking at um, how the club did following his departure. Um, but... Um, one criticism that was levelled at him uh, during his, his time at Southampton was that he he failed to build a relationship with the fans, and I'm just wondering whether you sense that there's there's that same sort of unsettled element to his, his current relationship with Leicester fans. Um, currently, it, it's on the mend, but certainly at the end of last season, with how the form slumped and also the way they were playing and how the players he was trying to play a way that the, the players that he had couldn't do. And so, and also the, the fact that because, because he's, he is French and it's, it's not his, English isn't his native language and while it is improving, how quiet he is in his press conference, fans struggled to engage in, with that. They were seeing the, the players play like, as they saw it, uh, a boring sideways side of football when they've been used to this counter-attacking style for so long. They struggled to connect with him. And so there were a lot of fans towards the end of that season who struggled to warm to him and, and basically have enough of him. Looking at the pre-season, looking at the business they've done since then, and I'm sure we'll come to that. Uh, since then, he's starting to rebuild that trust and faith a little bit because the fans are starting to see a little bit more of an identity and a positive one going forward. So end of last season, terrible. Now it is, it is on the it is on the mend. Sure. It's, it's interesting to hear you sort of um, allude to some of the reasons why that might be actually sort of that relationship is is beginning to get onto the mend. Um, you mentioned the players that have been brought in and we'll definitely get on to talk about the recruitment that's been done. But um, uh, in terms of just generally how to have started this season and performance wise, how do you feel that's gone? Obviously, two wins out of three, one sort of narrow loss against United where I thought you were very unlucky. Uh, it seems anybody's unlucky not to get a result against this yeah. current incarnation of Manchester United. But um, have there been any sort of immediate noticeable shifts? I, you mentioned there that um, 
beginnings of a um, clearer identity are starting to be visible for fans. Yeah. I mean, the game they lost at United is probably the best performance of the season so far, yeah. which is the unfortunate thing. They were against Wolves, you would say they were probably a little bit fortunate to, to get to get that win. So Wolves, Wolves hit, the, hit the post three times and had a shot played off the line within 20 minutes. And then against Southampton, the first half, Southampton could, could quite easily have been ahead at half-time. So you could argue that Leicester have been a little bit fortunate in those two wins, but then they were also unfortunate against United. I think I think the key change has really been the fact that you're Leicester are now seeing, Leicester fans are now seeing under Puel, who is renowned for giving youth a chance. Leicester are now seeing a a younger, more attack-minded players coming through. James Madison, the new signing, is, is key to that and the, the role that he brings. And then you're looking at like Ben Chilwell and uh, Damari Gray and Wilfred Ndidi, who's still only 21, Harry Maguire, 25, um, Sonny Diabati, is in his early 20s. These are young players and they're young players who are playing with with a bit of a bit of a swagger about them. Of course, they are so young, so they are going to be naive unless they are probably going to lose games because of that and fans need to have patience with that. But they are, they're, they're seeing players, young players, who can now play the way that Claude wants to. And that is now looking bright for the future. It might not be perfect right now, but I would hope, that I can, from my point of view, see that there is a potential of a really strong young side developing. Yeah, it's interesting that because I think you may mentioned there uh, two factors that often can prove difficult for fan bases in terms of you know, having patience watching, watching your philosophy evolve but then on the other hand bits of leeway fans sometimes give managers is is when young players are being seen to be brought through so I think that's obviously going to get um, well plenty of sort of plaudits should they perform well and, and not well out of their depth I mean I mean one noticeable shift as well and this, this could have been an insight purely from the uh, Man United game that I saw the vast majority of, but people were talking about how, of course, Puel's um, style is, you know, it, it's a slight departure away from the sort of maybe t- traditional counter-attacking style that we've associated with Esther over the, the recent seasons and more possession, more control at times. Um, and you mentioned that James Madison is going to be key to sort of implementing that style and making it effective in terms of actually penetrating defences and things like that. At that, but I mean, how has the sort of view on that on that change in such success with the counter-attacking um, methods that you'd employed over the past few seasons? Uh, is it seen as uh, just another strength to your bow? Or well, I think that's what Puel said when he first came in was said, "Look, I don't want to change what Leicester do and what they're good at, but we need to have something different because we can't just play who fit into the channels for Vardy to chase against teams like." He mentioned at the time West Brom, obviously they went on to get relegated, but those kind of teams that will just sit back and not allow Vardy any space to be high. Poirot came in and said, look, we need to find a different way to break teams down because that isn't working. And it, and it hadn't, it wasn't working even. You can even look even towards the back end of the title winning season. There were, Leicester won five games in a row, one nil, because teams had worked Leicester out. And, but they still, because of ways of momentum and having quality like Mares around, would find a way to win games and they've found a way to get over the line when, when they, against teams that wouldn't give them any space. That then, the season after that and then the season after that, showed that that style 
wasn't working and that the owners want Leicester to be in the top seven, in the top even six maybe, and want to have a style that can, or at least more than one style, that can bring sustainable success. And that is what Puel is trying to bring now. That wasn't working at the end of last season, or at least he couldn't get it out of his, his side, and that's what fans were getting frustrated by. Now, the way that they're being able to control the ball more and have the players to do that, that should be able to... You'd hope that fans will, will look at that and think, yeah, do you know what? That That is sensible. That is what we needed to do. We did need to evolve and move on from that title-winning side. It's always going to be tough to do that because... Oh, those players are, are, are Leicester heroes and legends now. It's always going to be sad to see them phased out. But it's a job that had to be done. And I think eventually fans will come to realise that Puel is doing a job that had to be done and hopefully he's doing it quite well. Yeah, I guess you're right there. Somebody was eventually going to have to play pantomime villain uh, in that role, at least in terms of removing those sort of um, more well-liked sort of... Uh, the club icons now from the team and uh, sort of phasing in a newer sort of generation of players as well. I mean, you mentioned there that um, the issue sort of at the end of last season was that he perhaps didn't have the players to play the style he wanted to play. Um, been very busy in the summer, um, of course, in terms of um, transfers in, in in the market, signing seven players uh, for a total of around 114 million pounds, I believe it was, but of course funded uh, in part largely by that sale of Mares to City for 68-odd million, isn't it? Um, mm. And Musa, of course, is also left for about 60 million-odd. Um, generally, then, I mean, we can, we can talk about the individual players, and I know you mentioned Madison um, as well as someone who's caught the eye early on, but what did you make of the summer business in general? It's clearly it's a, it's, it's a big statement of intent in terms of the money that was spent, albeit with the with the caveat that you, you now have lost um, Mares, and that's going to be... Uh, you know, a significant change for the team to sort of get accustomed to. But in terms of the, the profile of players who's been brought in, did you get the impression that these are very much uh, Claude Puel uh, targets? Yeah, very much so. And I think I think that was one of the early keys over the summer when there was a lot of questions over whether Puel would survive. The players that were signed, and the, the first one was, was Ricardo Pereira. Now, he played under Puel. Um, before when he was in France and he was quite clearly a Puel signing. He was someone that Puel wanted to bring in. He not as much as Danny Simpson is a very accomplished right back and a defender, Puel wanted his defenders to right backs to full backs to attack. And Simpson can do that. And then when Pereira came in you thought, well hang on, he's a, he's Puel's man. So less gonna back him. Now in terms of the summer as a whole, I'm really happy with that because over the past couple of seasons since the title win, the transfer spending has seemed a little bit haphazard on Leicester's part. They've just kind of chucked a lot of money on players who you'd, on the outset you'd think, well, not quite sure where they fit in. I mean, look at Islam Slamani, he's now gone up on loan because while he's an accomplished goal scorer, he doesn't really fit into how Leicester play. And now, all the players they've brought in this summer fill holes. They need an attacking right back. They've brought in Pereira. They got rid of Danny. They got rid of um, Ben Hamer left. They needed an extra goalkeeper, so Danny Ward came in. Twelve was so desperate for a number ten. I mean, he'd played so many players. They played basically everyone bar the kit man at number ten last season, just to try and find a creative link yeah. for him. Couldn't find one. He tried Mares, Diabate, Okazaki, Gray, Inacho, the lot there. Madison does that job and does what he wants him to do. 
got rid one Algerian winger left. They bring another one in, in Rashid Ghazal, who basically is the same player as Riyad, but not quite as good because not many people are. Um, I mean, these are all signing. Leicester were, were short of centre backs. Um, there was a lot a feeling that Robert Huth left the club. Wes Morgan is aging, so they brought they brought in Johnny Evans for an absolute bargain at three and a half million. He brings experience there, and they brought in two young two young centre backs for the future. So Charles Arsunger from um, from Freiburg and Philippe Benkovic from uh, in Croatia. Um, so Dino Zagreb. The Leicester needed some central defensive options, and these are t- two ball playing centre backs. So from a fan's perspective or from a journalist's perspective, you can look at all these signings and think. Yeah. They fill holes that were required. These these are players who Leicester needed to make their squad stronger, and they've done that. So, from my point of view, I think it's a very strong summer, regardless of the, of the sale of Morris. No, for sure. I mean, I think all you all you'd ask is that there's a joined up vision, wouldn't you, in terms of the mm. the players the manager would like to implement the philosophies after, and then the the players that are then actually brought in. Liverpool fans themselves have been sort of enjoying the transfers in, in in the recent windows because, of course, it seems to be all joined up, but it hadn't always been that case. And of course, yeah, I think we've we've seen too well what can happen when you do you know, bring in players completely um, uh, in contrast with what with the style you're trying to employ. Of course, Benteke um, being one that always comes straight to mind in terms of what we were trying to do pressing. Well, exactly, but, um, he's the same as Islam Slomani, like a big yeah. target man, like a big target man who scored goals in Port in when he was. Uh, is it's bought in Lisbon. Well Leicester don't Leicester don't play like that. Leicester don't play for a target man. Same as when Ben Taki signed for Liverpool, you think, well how's he gonna fit in? Like, Leicester they don't cross the ball. Why why is he there? No, exactly, yeah. I mean it does seem a it does seem a while ago now, but of course it really wasn't. Um so yeah, I think we can just obviously be happy that there seems to be a much clearer vision there now. Uh, and, and and from everything you've said, especially because of the, the characteristics of the players as well, it does seem as though Poir's got uh, um the tools that he he would want to sort of go into the season with. So then, I mean, I thought the two players who clearly come in and I think caught the eye immediately. But please, uh, sort of, feel free to let me know if there's others as well who've gone under the radar already. But three games in, I mean, James Madison, um, I thought did very well um, in that initial game against Man United. Of course, the fact that he's going to be on TV in that big game, um, you know, it, it, it is a step up. You know, obviously coming from Norwich. Um, uh, didn't seem at all phased by, um, you know, the increased sort of level and does seem to have a great confidence about him. And uh, Pereira as well, as you mentioned, you could just see that he seemed like a, a fullback was very, very clear on what his job was, of course, and uh, um, plenty handy as well going forward. I mean, are those the two that have stood out the most in these opening three games of the, of the new signs that have come in? And uh, in terms of coming in to replace Mahrez whilst not being Mahrez, uh, I mean, he's got a tough task on his hands, surely. Yeah, I mean, like you say, those two are certainly the, the two that have impressed most so far. Uh, Pereira's an interesting one because we all thought that he was going to be, he'd just come in straight for Danny Simpson at right back and be an attacking right back. But Already we've seen in two games so far, Pereira's played on the wing with Daniel Marte at right back, and we all saw how that works when he gave away a penalty in the first two minutes at Old Trafford. So <laughs> fans aren't really quite sure why, what's happening there. But from Pereira's performance point of view, he's looked excellent. He just needs to 
play at fullback every week. Madison is, um, he's excellent and he was, Leicester, like I said before, needed that number 10 there because for Puel's style of play, you need a number 10 who drifts into the, drifts into space, wants the ball, wants to turn with the ball and wants to play it forward quickly. They didn't have that player last season, which made them look a little bit sideways and boring. Madison answers that. The question was, of course, how do you, is it easy to go from being the most creative player in the championship, with like 15 goals and 11 assists or something, in what was a pretty bang average Norwich side? How do you make that step up? He came into Old Trafford. I saw him in pre-season. He looked, he looked pretty good. But then Old Trafford, which I guess it's not quite as an imposing place as it might have been in the past, but it's still a pretty big stage to make a Premier League debut. And he came on and he, well, he started and it looks like he's got a bit of a swagger about him. He looked like he belonged on that kind of stage and he's done that all the way through. He's only, only a few games in, but he looks like a real star and uh, he's already been linked with, with, uh, England call-ups and so forth. So yeah, he's, he's, he's the star at the minute. Uh, Rashid Ghazali is an interesting one. He, he made his, um, his first real impacts in the, in the Carabao Cup win, uh, over Fleetwood on, on Tuesday. Kate scored an absolute worldie. Leicester, the club are really keen on downplaying the, the comparison with Riyadh and being like, look, he's, please don't call him Riyadh number two. That's really hard when you are Algerian, you are quite skinny. You are a left-footed winger that plays on the right and cuts inside and likes to yeah. pull off loads of skills. Yeah, stylistically, is he? Yeah, he, he looks like Riyad. He plays like Riyad, <laughs> and he's a, he's an Algeria teammate of Riyad. It's impossible not to compare the two of them. It's probably unfair on him because Riyad is a majestic player. So the big shoes to fill. We saw a glimpse of it on Tuesday against Fleetwood, but they were abysmal. So. It's, he's a player that's going to have to take time to adapt, as Mares did when he first joined England's um, English team. So they're the three that I think fans are looking forward to seeing the most. Or maybe Charles Soyinger as well as in centre centre defence. Um, once he gets over his injury, he looks like he might be a bit, bit of a star as well. No, for sure. I mean, on Mares then, especially if we're talking about Mares, you know, version two or. You know, the fact that he's not Mahrez version two. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, his departure from Leicester in the end, I mean, I thought initially when it was clear that I thought, you know, Mahrez, um, and, and perhaps Vardy as well would, you know, seek moves elsewhere. And it's, it, it seemed to be from the outside in that the indication was that Leicester were willing to, you know, allow that if it was, you know, sensibly done, et cetera. And, you know, that, and, and that both players, I think it was in, in, initially served, what was it, one more season or something like that. There'd, there'd be an understanding about that. Um, the longer it went on, of course, um, it did turn fairly unpleasant in the end. Of course, when you mentioned at the start of the pod, Mares taking matters into his own hands by going a while trying to force the move, um, uh, yeah, and, and of course not not succeeding initially. Um, uh, has that sort of then, uh, I guess it would do, sort of tarnished the perception of Mares um, from Leicester fans in the club, or is there still sort of a, a big admiration there for? for all the work that he did do um, you know, prior to that sort of bad ending. Yeah, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's tarnished the the legacy that he, that he has. Like in in twenty years time, people will still yeah. look back and they do now and they think, well, what a player he had and how great he was for us. I mean, I, I wrote a piece about it at, at the time when when the move was confirmed, and I started off by saying 
I honestly, I thought when Mares left the club, I thought I would be sadder than I was. I thought right. this is the most, without doubt, the most skillful, the most, the most beautiful of footballers that I've ever seen play for Leicester. Speaking as a fan, I thought, um, I thought I would be, I thought I'd be really sad about it, but I wasn't. I was, if anything, I was relieved because it's dragged on for so long and it caused so many problems that didn't need to be caused. There was a wait over that, over this summer of if your club well, do you start planning for your pre-season with him, without him? What, what did you do? And I think Leicester fans realized, I mean, it was, it was well over 400 days before, from when he first made that statement saying he wanted to leave, but Leicester actually sold him. Leicester fans knew that this was going to happen. It had been dragging on for so long. They just wanted it to be over. And now it is. Leicester fans can move on, thank Riyadh for all his service and wish him the best. Because I think most fans from ones I've spoken to want him to do well at Manchester City. They want him to, to go and show everyone how great he is and how much we've seen him. So people still... People are a bit annoyed of how, react, of how he reacted and and so forth, but I think most people knew it was coming. Are glad it's done and wish we had the best. Yeah, I think to an extent you you come to realise that no club is immune to it um, at any stage. You, you, even if you think of yourself as a as a big club or one of the biggest. Well, you had it with Coutinho, didn't you? Yeah, Coutinho. So I think it's interesting hearing you speak there because I. Um, I I think it, it seems to me anyway that many fans did turn against Coutinho towards the end. But I mean, for me, um, I mean, I've obviously been lucky to, I've watched a number of very talented footballers come through the club. But, um, you know, in terms of natural talent, watching Coutinho over, over the past few years was really, really a joy to behold. And so seeing him move on, especially to the likes of Barcelona, where you, you sort of hold your hands up and go, OK, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of clubs in the world where I, mean, I can't begrudge you from a career point of view, uh, from a lifestyle point of view, wanting to go there, you know, play with Messi, let's face it, for mm. for a couple of years. Um, and, um, yeah, just try and show the world what you can do. Cause I think it's always funny. Um, you know, Myra is probably the same for you. Um, Coutinho for us um, it just seems to be a Premier League thing, doesn't it, in terms of when players move on. Other Premier League teams are, they're, they're so overrated, those players, and then they actually have to go somewhere else and prove to everybody that they're not. Um, so, it's yeah, it's, it's, there, there are comparisons, I think, for sure, but... I think what you mentioned there in terms of the team being able to move on, the fans being able to move on, and then the, the sort of the changing of the guard more generally that's been happening that you talked about, um, maybe it is, maybe it does help that slightly. But what I was going to ask you was, we talked about the signings that have come in, and um, I, mean, I mean, what does life after Mares look like? I mean, Vardy's still there, of course, in terms of um, that pair, the fame this pair from the title winning season um, the style is slowly changing with the, you know, the increase of possession based football and things like that but um, did Mara's sort of push you even further in one direction or, or does the signing of um, uh, Mara's number two of course <laughs> Gazelle, um, does that indicate that you're still trying to stick to a relatively similar style um, well there was a big I mean the big issue that fans have at the minute is Leicester look like they're crying out to play three at the back, and it looked and it looked as though over the summer. And we, I mean, my colleagues wrote about it and spoke about it on 
on our kind of podcast at the time, which is, well, now Riyad's not there. Does that mean that Leicester could play three at the back? Because you don't really have to bother with wingers that much. So cause with, with, with Pereira there and with Chilwell there, they're two basically wing-backs um, who are more inclined to attack than defend. Harry Maguire there, who showed for England just how good he is in a, in a back three. And then with Madison there in the hole to do the creativity down the middle. And with an abundance of central midfielders like Adrian Silva, Wolfgang Didi, Gentil uh, Bora, uh, it looked like it, it was crying out for three at the back. But Puel has, hasn't played it at all, apart from a, a brief spell at the end of the Wolves game to try and um, compensate there. So, the Mari's departure hasn't resulted in a change in system, which is unexpected. What Puel has been trying to hit home with is that look, he said, look, we can't we can't replace Riyad. We couldn't replace Riyad. A, a direct replacement for Mares would have been far too would have been too expensive for a club, even like Leicester, who have got billionaire owners. A player of hit Riyad's quality would be looking at ludicrous numbers. So what we've got to do is allow others to share that that creative load. So the likes of Madison, the likes of Gazelle, but not just on his own shoulders. The likes of Damari Gray, who has basically lived in Riyadh's shadow mm-hmm. for his entire career at Leicester. Well, wants to give these players the chance to, to 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 assist, to score goals, to take on Riyadh's mantle and share it among them, and not to say, right, Gazelle, you're filling Morris's position. Go and score the amount of goals that he did. Go and score the amount of assists that he did. He wants the whole squad, or the whole uh, attacking players, the likes of Gray, Albright, Gazelle, Diabate, Madison, to do that between them. So you can't really replace Mares out and out. No, of course. I, mean, I think, I think that, that does sound like a far more sort of sustainable, sensible approach, even though the thought of sort of dyeing Gazelle's hair blonde and not telling Mahrez <laughs> yeah, exactly. that Mares has actually left uh, would have been a fun experiment for a while. But, uh, I mean, so coming on to then the weekend's game, I mean... At the end of the pod, we're going to talk about maybe a bit more specifically about individual battles that we expect to see and stuff like that. But I mean, how do you ex- um, expect to see Puel approach this game this weekend? Because Leicester um, aside seem to have quite a lot of joy against Liverpool in recent years, e- even in the games where they've actually not won the games, it will cause plenty of trouble because the, the direct approach um, for a while, the fact that you actually didn't seem to care about possession, of course, um, and often vacated the midfield altogether, made it very difficult for us to actually press anything. Um, and uh, that, that has actually resulted in some really, really entertaining, if nerve-wracking games over the past couple of seasons. Um, obviously, I think Paul had a good record against Klopp as well when he was at Southampton. It seemed to frustrate him. We picked up that win at midfield last season, but... Um, uh, given what you've, you've spoken about so far about the elements of a new star coming in and what you know about um, is, it, is it the best idea for well to try and implement that more possession based style against a, a team like us even at home? That's, that's a really good question and it's one that I'm not quite sure how he will approach it. The, the big problem that Leicester have got is that Vardy's not available. Is that Vardy yeah. still will be serving that final game of his suspension against Liverpool, which is a real blow because, as you will probably know, 
Vardy's record against Liverpool is <laughs> is, is ridiculous. It's like seven yeah. goals, seven goals in his last five appearances against Liverpool. Ugh, the volley. Ugh, God. Oh yeah, <laughs> don't we remember that? <laughs> um, so yeah, so Vardy's so has been so prolific. Well, he's always prolific, but he's been so prolific, especially against Liverpool. So the fact that he isn't there, and the the kind of ability that he has. Because he's such a unique player, that throwback to the old centre forward of on the last shoulder running in behind, Leicester don't have really another player like that. So, if Puel were to want to play a more counter-attacking style, not quite sure who could play that that Vardy job as well as Vardy. You've got Inacho, but he's nowhere near as quick as Vardy. You've got Gray. He might he might have a bit of pace, but he's not. He's not as aggressive as Vardy. He's not as prolific. He's not as clinical in front of goal as Vardy. So maybe his hand might be forced into playing a, a playing more. I don't know his way. Problem that is is that um, Liverpool will, will like that because that means Liverpool will be able to press Leicester. And well, we all know we'll, we've all seen how good Liverpool are at doing that. I would have preferred to see Leicester play the counter-attacking way. They played it against Arsenal at home at the end of last season, which even amid all the the, the falling off the cliff of form and the, and the, the struggles of, and the, the annoyance of fans, Leicester still managed to, to beat them playing counter-attacking football. They went to Wembley on the last day against Tottenham and yeah, they lost, lost 5-4, but they still managed to cause problems, Tottenham serious problems. So play, you'd imagine that Leicester want to play the same way against Liverpool. Problem Paul's got is the best bloke to be able to do that isn't available. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because I think, that, as you mentioned, yeah, from a system point of view, um, it would make complete sense. But then, yeah, the personnel again that that becomes an issue. Um, despite the fact that I think that there's a couple of players there that you mentioned that actually do really um, rate in terms of the promise that they have. But as you mentioned, and they're, they're not the consistent um, sort of performers that Vardy has been over the past um, past couple of years, especially against Dallas. Let's face it. So. Um, all right then. I mean, just just before we do take a small break and then come on to uh, talk about um, how things have started for Liverpool this season. I mean, just one question we're asking all um, opposition fans this season, um, James, is, is just what your general thoughts are on sort of Liverpool's business and um, and sort of, I guess overall chances just on the outside in. It's, it's, it's been really interesting to get people's perceptions of what we've what we've done today and what. Um, uh, what people actually perceive the team to be uh, to be like going into the season? Well, they look they certainly look they certainly look excellent and superb. And I know from a fancy football owner's <laughs> point of point point of view, I have as many Liverpool players as I'm possibly allowed. So that that front <laughs> that front three of um, Salah, Firmino, and Mane look look awesome as they were last season. I think the signing of Van Dijk was was an interesting one from. From maybe opposition fans' point of view, thinking that's a lot of money to spend on a centre back that was yeah decent for Southampton and was a little bit mardy from time to time. But now we're starting to see just how much of influence he's had. I think it's more um, the fact you spent so much money on um, on a goalkeeper that I think is from an outsider's point of view. Yes, it's expensive, but why wouldn't you pay top dollar for a top goalkeeper, especially when it's always seemed from the outside that 
that goalkeeper position has always been Liverpool's Achilles heel and you always say title winning sides always have an ex super goalkeeper and I know that when Leicester won the league Schmeichel was so huge in that season of so many games where he won Leicester so many points it always felt that Liverpool didn't quite have that figure now they do that's another box ticked so I think the fact that Van Dijk is now coming into his own and the Liverpool and the goalkeeper pro- sort of problem is sorted that they look far more imperious side because not only have you got that frightening attacking display you've also now got a solidity at the back and those two things when you put them together are a really really potent force and now from outside looking in they look like they could give City a real real go for the title yeah it's certainly going to be interesting I think that's obviously it has felt a little bit weird to see sort of the media sort of adopting us as um, not necessarily favourites, but you're just almost willing us to be these sort of, sort of title rivals for City. It's been it's been an interesting sort of um, sea change a little bit. And then anything that annoys um, sort of rival fans is, is obviously welcome, of course, as well. But it's also taking us, some, I think, taking us a little bit of time to get used to a balanced Liverpool team because it's been it's been quite a long time, I think. So um, yeah, it's certainly going to be interesting. But anyway, thanks so much for all that insight on Leicester. It's really fascinating to hear. Um, the very especially how he's uh, um, sort of tasked with you know, changing out the old guard and, and instilling this new younger Leicester team. So we'll be sure to get you back in um, towards the end of the pod, James. But I'm just going to take a small, a small break now, and uh, uh, I'll be speaking to Umar right after this break about uh, all things Liverpool. Hi, Jan. How are you? Um, is everything okay? Yeah, absolutely, Gags. Everything is fine. But you know what? I'm hearing you've got a special offer for Anfield Index Pro. Is that so? Yes, absolutely. And we've got your weekly show, Moby on the Spot, the popular stat show, Under Pressure. Post-match Raw is now back and loads of other shows available at our lowest price ever. Go on then, Gags. How cheap is that? Get this, mate, get this. It's absolutely free for seven days and then only $39.99 for a whole year. New users can now sign up and access everything at AmphilIndexPro.com. I have to say, Gax, that is incredible news. i got to go. Where are you going? Well, to be fair, I need to go and tell Rushy about this offer. <laughs> Thanks. Whilst you're there, please let Rushy know that we accept all major credits and debit cards via the website. And not only that, we've now added PayPal too. And if you want an app option, then via iOS, you can purchase AI Pro through an in-app purchase. Jan? Jan? Right, so back now, Umar, so left you waiting there, sort of, as we sort of talked, um, with James all about Leicester. I mean, there was plenty to, to be interested, um, about there. You know, been lots of turnover in terms of the players who are coming in. Of course, we then have to think about them contending with the change of styles as well. But, um, you know, to, to focus on Liverpool and then there's been a huge amount of change there. I think we're still getting used to it all, really. Uh, and James touched upon it there towards the end of his, his point about, you know, Liverpool seem in a more balanced side now, perhaps the, the missing piece of the puzzle was that defensive solidity. Um, and if that win against Palace was you know, quite professional in terms of the way we, we carried it out, um, was that win against Brighton um, one we actually can class as an ugly win in your, in your view? 
Um, for me, actually, what's it called? Not really. I think. Um, okay. I think. I think the Crystal Palace one was the ugly win in many ways. I mean, this was the professional one where I think if you see near the end of the game, actually, we had better control. It wasn't all around the edge of our box, or you know, lo- winning second balls and just clearing the line. You know, there was actual thought to the game, and we nearly scored a second goal near the end of the game as well. I mean, it was just brilliant build up, and. Um, Again, it just showed our bench, you know. I mean, you had Daniel Sturridge come on and, you know, he didn't put a foot wrong, really. His hold-up play was amazing. He started dictating play. And then you look back at the bench and who's on the bench there. you still got Shakiri on the bench. Fabinho, who you paid £40 million for, doesn't even make the squad, you know. Um, so it's just... is. I just think it was an amazing game, but it also just showed the strength within this squad. And uh, I think it was one of those games where we saw, obviously, I mean, the highlights were all about, um, you know, just the goalkeeping. But I think um, you, you just saw, like, you just saw all the things that you wanted to see um, in a defensive sense. So my favourite moment, one of them, was um, where a ball's thrown in. It's cleared by Van Dyke, But before it's cleared, if you can see in the camera, uh, you see Joe Gomez keeping up pace, running in the inside. Uh, alongside a um, Brighton player who's making a run into the channel. And I think that was quite amazing to see because usually I, I've just got horror shows of um, <laughs> of Lovren and Matip uh, side-glancing at each other, who's going to go. But there's no... With uh, Van Dijk, he makes the job really easy for the defender because he would engage or he shouts at you to engage. So there's no uh, thinking on who's going to go and what's your role. So you you just kind of have your job where you let him do what he does and then you just cover him. So I think it's quite a amazing dynamic that Joe Gomez it was Joe Gomez's pace as well. So I think for me it was just a great performance, but specifically the true stars were were the defenders in that game. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because I think um, I think what's probably happened for many Liverpool fans. Um, perhaps myself included as well, is that you become used to this baseline performance of you know, the blistering attacking style, things like that. And um, let's face it, I mean, even against the likes of Brighton, we've we've not really seen um, a Liverpool side, you know, maybe one nil up, two nil up and go, yeah, it's all right, we'll, we'll settle for that and have the ability to do that. Um, I think it's going to take a little bit of time to get used to, but I was sort of struck by just how disciplined Brighton were, how well drilled they seemed to be as well, to cutting off any space for us. And it, it, it did seem, if it, if it wasn't for that sort of moment of brilliance from Salah, um, of course there were a couple of other missed chances um, that we perhaps you know, Brighton could have snatched a draw, a draw there later on with that, with that headed chance for Gross. But um, I mean, some of the players who stuck out to me, it'd be great to get your opinion on it, um, Umar. Is um, Ginny's one who's um, Ginny Wanyadam, of course, is, is one who's got lots of um, um, perhaps not too much attention at, at the start of the season, but I think he does he does warrant it. I mean, he's playing in that six role, of course, that we saw only a couple of times last season, and perhaps we were expecting Fabino to play that from the start. He's getting the uh, sort of slow um, sort of um, introduction sort of treatment we saw with Chamberlain as well. What have you made of Wanyadam so far this season? He seems to be far more involved, right? Yeah, I think um, if you look at the end of the season or last season, he ended it really strongly um, at clutch games in the Champions League. He was he was thrown into the deep to play in the sixth row against Man City, 
Um, and Man City at that time was just flying, and he came out of there in flying colours. Actually, he did a fantastic job, and I was, um, you know, I got a lot of abuse from my friends and just my, my family in the sense that I just said that I think that um, he's a better six than Jordan Henderson when you're pressed oh, no. because because he's press resistant. Okay, he's probably not got the passing range of Jordan Henderson. Um, you know, where he puts the ball out of the feet and then he can send those beautiful long balls into certain channels. But what he does have is that he can beat his man in tight areas. And when he's pressed, he can keep the ball. And most importantly, he's got this really um, lower body strength and this ability to turn at really quick pace. So he, when he's around fast wingers or strikers, his low sense of gravity, his low body strength, he manages to get the ball and he does this shielding thing, which is like a beautiful tribute to Eric, to, um, Enrique. <laughs> if you remember, <laughs> there's no one ever been better than Jose Enrique at shielding a football in the world, like hands down. Like he was phenomenal at that. <laughs> so it's like a little tribute to Jose Enrique in the way he just kind of shields the ball and then he can turn on it and he just starts going. And you saw it in this game actually, where he did this thing where it was something out of futsal, where he controls it and then he chips it over a player. Then he controls it on his, I think his thigh. Then oh, he's yeah. and he's and he's just running between players and you're just looking. You're like, that's your number six. That's your number six. And then you you heard um you know um it was quite telling what what Jurgen Klopp said after the match uh, later on it in the day I read it in the Guardian that, that um he said that for him you, he can't really have a true six in the system that we play because of the spaces that are open. He said the, the space just such a big vacuum. And what you need is you need these hybrid players who are between a six and an eight, and but they can quickly change positions. And you see it with James Milner as well. Sometimes what Liverpool do is they'll play the two centre halves, and right in front of them they'll put two midfielders, and it becomes like a rectangle box. And what they do is they cover for the fullbacks when they go wide, and they can stay in the centre. But the four are the nucleus of the team; they're the spine behind the goalkeeper, and then everyone else can interchange and change positions. That's why you had a uh, beautiful interplay between your two fullbacks in the opposition area. You know, so it's like you've got Robertson making a run of a forward and you've got um, Trent Alexander-Arnold playing as an inside winger, <laughs> you know, getting on his left foot and taking a shot where he nearly scored. And that's all because of the rectangle that's behind them of James Milner, Gini Wijnaldum, Joe Gomez and Virgil van Dijk. And I think that's what uh, is allowed by Liverpool. That's why it's going to be quite interesting to see when Fabinho actually does play because there's so much he has to learn in the new system and there's so much he has to unlearn as a number six that he's been picking up for the previous few years when he was playing as a six for Monaco. Yeah, so it's going to be interesting, especially when you take it like that. Of course, the the level of flexibility that's in this um, in this side at the moment is really great to watch and um, very unexpected. Sort of Jose Enrique sort of throwback there, but you are <laughs> right. There was there was nobody better at shielding that ball out of play. Even if you know the ball was a hundred meters, two hundred meters from the line, he would Definitely. he would attempt to start shielding <laughs> it out. I remember it was. Yeah. Uh, it was sometimes hypnotic to watch to be honest but I mean you heard um, you heard James talk there about I think lots of people have been focusing in on on Van Dijk and Allison because um, it's been such a long time I think since Liverpool have looked at those positions of goalkeeper and centre back and felt completely assured by them uh, Van Dijk has been getting loads of coverage recently as well you, yeah. you talked to, um, about him a little bit there in terms of the influence he, he's managing to have currently yeah. I think we're on track 
um, expected goals against or whatever to, to concede about 17 this season. Obviously, that's not going to be the case. I mean, it would be, it would be yeah. incredible, but it's, it's not going to be the case. Um, but it, things are looking far more promising um, than they have done in, in you know, recent years where we were regularly doing yeah. what, high 40s. Um, in terms of what we're conceding, and, and we, we all know very well that that proved costly on a number of occasions. 100%. So, I mean, how do you feel about the influence that um, Van Dyke's had so far, and what's the biggest thing that you've uh, you've noticed? I mean, the biggest change you noticed as a Liverpool fan watching the defence. Well, yeah. for me, um, Van Dyke was the best centre half in the in the Premier League when he was at Southampton, and he's the best centre half in the Premier League. Because he's at Liverpool, it's good. Uh, I think he was just, you know, when you play for Southampton, you are going to be undermined. There's no denying that as a talent, but especially specifically as a centre half, because you are dependent on who plays around you. You know, as a forward, you know, if you're a striker, if you're really good, you might have a few moments where you show you your class, but as a centre half, you do rely on the system you're playing, but he was still the best centre half in the, in the league and arguably one of the best in the world. And then he had a really terrible knee, um, in ankle injury. And then for six months. And then even then we were desperate to sign him. And so were the other top six clubs in the league. It wasn't just Liverpool who were after him. Thankfully he chose us and he's come here. And he's shown what he can do. He's illustrated what he can do as a leader, but most importantly as a great centre half. The biggest thing to take away from me was I knew he was eerily dominant. I knew he's physically dominant. Um, these are things that statistically when you look at the numbers he's the best aerial center half in the world pretty much you know his win percentage is extremely high um for me the biggest thing is is that he reminds me a lot of nesta in in the sense that he doesn't engage he, you know he doesn't engage into into the tackle the same way maldini used to do as a fullback is that what they do is they stick to a certain zone and they let you come to them you know he you you never see him lunging in at a tackle he doesn't lunge in you won't see him sliding his feet out onto the ball. What he would do is he'll run alongside you and when you make the move in, you hit the wall. That is Van Dyke. You know, so that's that's the best defenders in the world. What they do is they don't lunge in. It's not Hollywood, you know, and um they don't look that impressive as well because they're defending and that's the main thing. You know, I remember I was listening to someone talk about centre half and they said John Stone's amazing because John Stones can dribble past midfielders. I was like, yeah, that's dribbling. I mean, but what's that got to do with defending? The centre-half's first job is actually defending. It's bonus what they can do, the other things. He can do all of the other things, technically speaking, but what he's fantastic at is staying tactically aware and disciplined, staying in a zone and sending you to areas you don't want to go as an attack. So if you're left-footed, he's sending you into the right side and you don't want to be there. And if you cut in and then you hit him, and his, obviously because of his physical presence and his quickness, you know, so he can make up for whenever he does make a slight error of where he's positioned himself. So, you know, I think for me, the biggest thing to take away was how tactically astute he is at reading the situation and how intelligent he is into sending you into areas that you do not want to go as an attacker. No, of course. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned plenty of good points there into the, just, um, let's face it, very often labelled as the really boring defensive stuff that you know, <laughs> people don't like to to look into or, or talk about. In fact, you you probably just don't like to talk about it because you don't want to don't have to worry about it. But for years we've not seen it there. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's 
inconspicuous in its absence. I, I do think it's going to take a bit of time for people to sort of get accustomed to uh, um, having this assurance at the back there. I mean, Alice um, doing sort of dinks over um, on Russian wingers uh, and driving <laughs> sort of clearing it to Rosette is definitely going to test some of the hearts in that stadium, I think, for sure. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just it's re- remarkable to see two, two players who have such supreme confidence in their own ability as well. And it's also going to be interesting as well, I think, you know, given the summer Harry Maguire's come off as well, um, I'm, I'm sure there'll be plenty of comparisons between um, those two um, this weekend in terms of the build-up to the match. I'm sure that people will be highlights um, sort of the, um, some similar strengths that both of those players have as well. But, but to move on to Leicester, uh, um, you heard us talk about how, how yeah. Leicester have played and how traditionally yeah. or in the past few years they have caused us problems with, you know, with being so direct, uh, uh, not being, you know, um, really too, too worried about having the ball in midfield dominating in there. Um, they've been happy to go, um, to go long efficiently when they need to. Um, yeah. And it's caused us plenty of problems in the past. I mean, do you think now with the third up that we have, and you mentioned the midfield, um, at length earlier on. Do you think we're better set up to, to deal with that sort of play, um, even though, we, as James was saying, we might not even see it this weekend? Yeah, I think for me, the biggest um, bummer out of this game is that we won't get to see Vardy up against this defence, because if we, ever there was a defence made to deal with Vardy, this is it. I mean, in the sense of, you know, Vardy's an amazing player. He's an incredible runner of the channels, you know, his speed his determination, and his record against the top six this teams is just phenomenal. It's just outrageous. You know, he doesn't play for, out of one year of Leicester's years in the Premier League, they were the dominant Premier League side, but usually, you know, they're not in the top six teams in the league. But uh, what's it called? His record is phenomenal against the top six. And, uh, you know, I think just the way the pace of uh, Joe Gomez, who arguably is as quick as Vardy, if not I think in a 100-meter dash, he's probably quicker than Vardy, which sounds insane, but this is the thing with Joe Gomez. He's deceptively extremely fast. And um, um, next to him is Van Dijk, who's really quick. But most importantly, you've got a goalkeeper who's just so who's just insane. You know, he's, he's, he's a lot like Neuer at his peak when it comes to playing outside of the area. When it's coming out, and as we saw, chipping the ball over the uh, on-rushing attackers, I mean, this is a game where I really wish that Vardy was playing because um, this would have been entertaining. Just, just coming in there, I mean, I, I'm, I hear what you're saying. I'm sure James is hearing what you're saying as well, but, but in yeah. my head, I'm, I'm very happy that I don't have to watch Alisson try and do a dink over Vardy. <laughs> <laughs> I really have to admit. I back him, I back him, but yeah. uh, still. No, it's, not, it's not that I back him. Um, it's just how entertaining it will be and amazing because you want to play the best as well. You want to play teams at the Best. If you're going to their home, you want to play them at the best. And um, with uh, Leicester, I want I wanted us to play them at the best. It's just a bit of a bummer that Vardy's not going to be um, on the pitch. But I was just looking at certain stats about Leicester, and what's crazy is Rod um, Poyel. He was the manager of Nice when I was uh, statistically analysing them for Opta, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, so he, he used to always play with a traditional number six in Didier Degard. He used to have Sevintich Dario as a striker. Eric Bertic was a left winger. Um, and, um, so he had like, there was a certain specific way of playing. But one thing that was amazing about Club PO was when I used to watch week in, week out Nice games was the amount of, um, number 10s he's tried integrating into the team and how much, uh, license he gives to young footballers. And 
that's why I think um, James Madison has joined the perfect club in the Premier League for himself in the sense that Claude Puyol, he might not play the most exciting football at times, but what he does do is he gives a lot of license to the number 10s by constraining the other players within the team. So, you know, the number six is a very traditional number six. He might even play, um, well, when he was at Nice, he used to play this uh, one player who, who was a, traditionally a centre-half, used to play a right-back. I don't think, obviously, after spending £22 million on a full-back, that's going to happen. He's just integrating him into the, the side. And then Pereira is realistically going to start playing as a right-back. But looking at Madison, I mean, last season he had 2.5 key passes per game, which is just incredible, 2.2 dribbles per game. And most importantly, the thing that really stood out to me is that unsuccessful touches is only 1.7. Now, people think of unsuccessful touches like a bad touch, but in reality it's not. Because when we're analysing games, what happens is, so let's say someone's running on the wing, let's say it's Raheem Sterling, and he knocks the ball ahead purposely by himself, not to beat a player, but just knocks it forward to run after it. If someone slides in and takes the ball out of play, that's not given as a uh, dispossession and attack or everyone starts clapping what a tackle is actually not a tackle statistically what that is is an interception and a clearance mm-hmm. successful clearance by the player and uh, so sometimes these poor touches aren't actually poor touches so you see unsuccessful touch you're like oh my god this player's got a bad touch he doesn't really so um, what's it called looking at his record last season it's pretty impressive considering his age he scored obviously the main stats is the 16 goals and the 8 assists but um and it's a fantastic record that he has. And then I was looking at Rashid, Rashid Ghazal as well, and Rashid Ghazal's record isn't pretty bad either. But if you look at his shot volume compared to Mahrez, it's really low. So their style of play is going to be a bit different, but what they're going to definitely have is they're going to have more license to James Madison. So James Madison is going to be given full license, um, I think, in their attack, the way Isarich was given at Nice when I used to watch Claude Peel's side week in, week out. And, um, so, I think is he is a he is a good manager. I mean, just looking at his record, uh, you know, if you look at his record at Monaco or Lyon, he was averaging 1.7 points per game, which isn't bad considering the sides. At Leicester, it's 1.46, which isn't terrible, but I mean, it's not amazing as well. But I think with Leicester, in due respect, I think they are the weirdest club in the Premier League by far, in the sense that. They've won the Premier League title, something I've never experienced as a Liverpool fan. They've achieved the ultimate goal, and I just don't know where you go from there, in the sense that, is, is it a realistic target ever again? I mean, how do you... For me, they they have every right in saying, you know what, we're a bigger club than Everton. With Liverpool, I guess we played the Champions League final last year. <laughs> you had to get that in, didn't you? I have you to get that in. Of course I have to go there. Well, uh, they wear blue and they play better football and they've actually won stuff. You know, since 95. So, I mean, they've got right. But, I mean, so, you know, it's just an amazing... So, I mean, what I'll say about Leicester City is you can go to America. People have heard of Leicester City. They haven't heard of Liverpool, probably. They've heard of this crazy team in England that won the league, you know, where the player was like, the star striker wasn't a footballer or something crazy, you know. So, I mean, they are just an amazing story. And they are... It's just an incredible club, really, in the sense that I just don't know, like, what's the expectations of a Leicester fan yeah. every season? Because you won the impossible. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there was a season where you won the you won the league, and it's 
are in your second season, I think, in the Premier League. I mean, yeah. where did, I mean, how can you ever be rational? Think here, uh, I could never be rational. If I, I guess what it, I guess what it is, is is then turning um, turning them from from that fairy tale club into a club that then you know consistently compete for, as James alluded to, their Europe in the Premier League and also yeah. finish in those top spots. I mean, James, bringing you back in a second, obviously, as we do sort of um, come towards the end here and talk about the game more specifically. I mean, you heard Umar there talk about you know, well, um, some of his traits as a manager. You, you alluded to some of those as well in terms of his freedom for the number 10s and things like that and him trying everybody in that role last season for Leicester. In terms of individual battles this weekend then, and what you you expect um, uh, take place or be the key back. Where, where do you look on the pitch and think that's the area where Leicester are going to have to be strong um, or you expect uh, you know, where you could potentially get some joy against us? Fullback area for Leicester is going to be something that's really key. I mean, we've already, uh, I mentioned it so, uh, earlier with um, with the whole Amati Pereira thing uh, and with someone like Chilwell who has been He's fantastic going forward, and he's he has been defensively a lot lot better this season, but has sometimes struggled that way. So the fullback area against the likes of Salah and Mane, that has got to be so strong for Leicester. Otherwise, they could really really struggle. That's the one. That's the area where I think Leicester fans will be most concerned and will be most looking at the team sheet. To think, to see who is going to be up against those two players. So that's going to be the, the key area for Leicester to, in terms of trying to nullify Liverpool's attacking threat. Uh, in terms of a, attack, we've spoken about him so much, uh, so far, and that's, that's Madison. And um, because, uh, as Imar says, like, Puel, he's, he's Puel's man. He is, he's the key for turning Leicester into a team that just passes it sideways and tends to be asleep to a team that can cut open defences and that can that can really put teams under pressure. So I think Madison's role is going to be so vital to how Leicester get on against Liverpool um, at, at the weekend. For sure, I think it's good. definitely going to be a key factor. I mean, it's, it's a different type of Leicester that we're facing this weekend. If you were to look at um, to Leicester then, Umar and, and think you know, give Liverpool um, problems, even despite what we've seen and the improvements that we've seen um, in the team this season. Where would those areas be for you that you think that's going to be an interesting battle? To be honest, um, I just I don't I, I generally don't know in the sense that I think it depends. You know, they have a they can they always do have a great atmosphere at the stadium. Um, it, but the problem, the good thing for us is, is it's 12.45 kickoff, so everyone's gonna be not in the best of moods. I mean, so it's, is it's that good I for us though, Uma? Is that good? Because apparently, no, not with our record. Well. Our, our record is terrible. Well, I think, come on, like, if you're a manager, Jurgen Klopp, uh, last year, he, I'll give it to him. There was still excuses about 12.4, you know, 12.45 kickoffs is not enough time for me to train and stuff. You've had a whole summer to, to figure a way out that you can optimum training that you can give to your players and prepare them for 12.45 kickoff. I know it's not something he's probably ever done at Germany or his playing career or his football career, but he's been here long enough now that he should be able to know that there's going to be a lot of games that he's going to play as a Liverpool manager 
that he's going to undertake as a local manager when he's going to have this situation. So hopefully, we will be prepared for this. But um, I think the main threat from them is going to be if they can manage to overload us in uh, what's it called within the midfield. Um, specifically, if uh, uh, what's it called, you know, if we lose the ball, if it's the times we look the most threatened is when we lose the second ball a bit of time. And for some weird reason, our build-up play sometimes does break down within the midfield and defence, and then we start throwing the ball into the channels, and then it just becomes a repetitive cycle of giving the ball to the opposition. And with the players they have available, especially James Madison, uh, Gray, and uh, Iheanacho as well, because Iheanacho is a very technical striker. He's in the mould of Daniel Sturridge, you know, in the sense that he's going to come deeper, he's going to get on the ball, and he's going to look up. So, you know, if they start playing in between each other and they get overloading midfielders within the box and within the areas like that, there's going to be opportunities for them. So um, I think this is the game where they should... But the thing is, obviously, on the other side, flip side, is with Liverpool, it takes two passes and we're into the opposition area um, with two absolute rubber dinghy wingers <laughs> in uh, Salah and uh, Mane. So um, it's a bit of a poison challenge when you attack Liverpool and overload them because you're leaving a lot of space in behind that can be exploited. So, but I yeah. think, yeah, that's the best way for them is to actually overload us and to get in actual on the ball and have runners running into the spaces and actually pressing us. Not a lot of teams do that. They don't press us in deeper areas as much as often. And I think we've, um, it's been negated because of the ability on the ball of specifically Joe Gomez. Van Dyke and uh, the new goalkeeper in Allison, in the sense that he's just, you know, he's he's really good on the ball, and uh, he can just oh, oh he can just chip the ball over specific players, and he can throw the ball into certain zones for the fullbacks. Yeah, I think everything you you told me there, I think also everything that James has told me as well, strikes me that even despite the the changing styles, even from from both teams, in in some it is set up to be. It's still a pretty exciting game to be honest. Um, just based upon sort of just the relative strengths of both sides. I think as James mentions, I'm I'm pretty relieved, and same as you, I'm pretty relieved not to see Vardy. Even though uh, I see your point as sort of taking on a team at full strength and proving yourselves and things like that, I just yeah, I think he's <laughs> too good. I'm, 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 I'm not going to say I'm not. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to not to, to avoid that. To be honest. <laughs> uh, okay. Alright then guys, I mean I mean I think you both have incredibly in terms of previewing huge tons of insight there on, on Leicester James and tons of insight on um the changes you've noticed in Liverpool so far this season, but also some great stuff on Puel as well from your time sort of analysing Nice as well. So I'm gonna come to the end now guys and ask you for uh, predictions, put you on the spot of course and as always. Um James, coming to you first. I mean what do you Oh I need expect? to come to me first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. You you could talk a, l- a little bit about perhaps what you're expecting from the game before you actually get to a scoreline or anything like that. But uh, yeah, what are you what are you expecting this weekend? Um, I'm expecting Leicester to face their toughest test so far by a mile, and this will be the the biggest test of where of, of where Leicester are, maybe how far they've come because. United weren't great and were helped by some mistakes early on. Wolves and Southampton were two evenly matched teams, so Leicester just got a bit fortunate. This is one where this is a real 
real real strong team that's playing superbly. Recently, Leicester have made really, really slow starts. In every game they've, they've played so far, their start has been poor. But they've not played against well, against United. They got punished because of the penalty. But against Wolves and Southampton, Leicester weren't punished for their slow starts. If there's going to be a team that can punish them if they are slow out of the blocks, it's going to be Liverpool. So I'm just, from a Leicester point of view, hoping that Leicester can start this game as they have finished previous games. Um, with that in mind, if we're moving to the score prediction, while my heart would dearly love to um, predict another Leicester victory, but as we've already said, without, without Vardy and, and what he can bring when it comes to counter-attack, I think Leicester are going to struggle. Um, I would like to hope even to be able to claim for a draw, but I think if I'm being completely logical about this, um, I'm probably going to go for a Liverpool win and I will go 2-1 to Liverpool. Yeah, plenty of agonising there to sort of going back and forth on it, but yeah, I think that's yeah, it's interesting to hear the points you made there about the this being the, the first proper test you guys are going to get to see where you really are. I mean, I mean, Uma, I mean, I mean, what do you what do you think then on your end, your prediction for for the game this weekend? Um, I think it's going to be a case of fear in the sense that they're going to make sure that there's not a lot of spaces to exploit for us. But um, I don't. I generally don't think there's a more in sync front three in probably Europe, to be honest, than our front three. And uh, you know, you saw it against um, Brighton as well. There was this one move where, to be honest, Firmino should score, um, but he doesn't. And there were two penalties that weren't given. But we don't get given penalties at Anfield that often anymore. So that wasn't that surprising. I think the thing is, I think this game, you know, considering we have been shooting blanks. Kind of with a front three, especially in the last game. I think Mane was probably a bit pissed off that he got off on the 70th minute, so he's going to be on a mission. And if he's up against a Marty, I think he's going to absolutely destroy him in that spirit, in the spaces available to him. And um, I think uh, personally, I really hope that um, uh, their centre halves actually look to play, you know, come out with the ball because they are technically really proficient, their fullback, their centre-halves. So if they manage to do that, I think there's going to be a lot of times when our our pressing ability is going to be um, able to press them high up and win the ball back. And um, I just think this is a game where we can actually score like four. I can see us scoring four or five goals in this game, actually. Okay. So I, think four, I think four, one or five, one. Wow, for me, okay. I really hope not. <laughs> Early in the season, he's, he's, he's not phased by the you know, nearly drawing one-one with Brighton at home. Uh, it's clearly not phased by that. Um, I always have to sort of sit a little bit more on the fence on these pods. It turns out because I've, I've just got so many of them to do throughout the season. But I'm um, you know, feeling confident this time. I think I think it could be. Um, yeah, the f- first goal conceded. I, I feel like it's coming in this game. So um, I'm going to go with. 3-1, but I was grabbing a late goal to make it three that maybe makes things look a little, a little bit more comfortable than they actually are going to be in the first round. I'm, I'm expecting a real a real good test here. So anyway, guys, thanks so much for helping me preview um, preview the game. It's always one that I do uh, look to enjoy, sort of less than Liverpool. So it's, I'm sure it's going to be exciting. You guys do go. I mean, James, did you have anything that you would like to uh, to plug on your end? or? Um, 
Yeah, well, if people want to follow me on Twitter, um, they can do. I'm um, at the sharp end, um, which is a nice pun on the surname. Um, <laughs> other than that, you can you can actually keep up to date with all anyone who's interested to see how Leicester City are getting on. on um, you can get all of that on the Leicester Mercury website, um, and we have our own podcast, which is beautifully labelled "Dilly Ding, Dilly Dong" in honour of our former manager oh, uh, of Cla- Claudio Ranieri. Um, so, if people want to hear more about Leicester City. They can check. Uh, they can check those out. But thank you for having me on. It's been. I've, I've really, really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Yeah. Be, I'll be sure to have you back on later in the season as well. I mean, Umar, as well. Do you have anything to plug before we do go? Uh, not really. Just uh, everyone check out the Kenny Dalglish podcast on AI. Um, on the contributors. If you're not contributing, do it because it's amazing, and you're getting fantastic content. So just do that. Really. That's it. There you go. A man of the brand. Gags is going to be delighted. Um, anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening. Hope you've enjoyed this pod. We're going to take a bit of a break after this one, of course, um, and, and then we'll, we'll be back to preview Spurs Liverpool um, in a week's time as well. So, yeah, hope you join us then as well. So uh, thanks to James. Thanks to Umar. And uh, I hope you've all enjoyed listening. Podcast Network.